You know, there's something in us that like stories. We like stories. We are a people who like stories. That's why uh, every Christmas I come hard on Hallmark Channel movies, as you know, but we like those stories, and I am no different. And I remember when I was in Coast Province, Afghanistan, I used to get a hard time from my buddies because we all had these foot lockers, right? They were, they were made out of plastic called tough boxes, and we'd keep different things in them, and mine were always full of books. And my buddies gave me a hard time and told me there was such a thing as Kindle, so I didn't like Kindles. I still don't like Kindles. Um, I like books. Not only because it was just, we give each other a hard time, but because my footlocker was heavy and they had to help me carry it. But one of the books in there that I still have and I still carry around and I still read and it's interesting to me, it was a biography of a guy named Thomas Stonewall Jackson. You might be familiar with Stonewall Jackson. You might have learned about him in school. I did. Uh, he's a graduate of West Point. He served in the Mexican-American War. He was a professor at Virginia Military Institute. Weird bit of trivia, he actually commanded an artillery battery during the hanging of Osawatomie John Brown. That's kind of a weird thing at Harper's Ferry when he caused that insurrection. He served as a general in the Confederacy <coughs> during the American Civil War, and he was killed, or he died, from wounds that he sustained from friendly fire at Chancellorsville during the Civil War. He was a Christian, a fervent Christian, a Presbyterian, and he believed in God's sovereignty. But what's interesting about Jackson, right, is that he had a daughter, and that daughter had a son. And that son was also a graduate of West Point and would serve during both world wars and rise to the rank of brigadier general. But Jackson also had a great-grandson who also graduated from West Point and served during World War II and was killed when he was shot down in his P-51 over France in 1944. So why do I tell you all that stuff? Well, I only mention all that stuff to say that people like stories. We are a story people that connect us with our past. Maybe you don't care about Stonewall Jackson. That's okay. But have you ever been drawn into a news article? It says, where are the actors of your favorite sitcom now? Right? Like, where are all the people of Full House now? And you're, and you're just drawn into this because you, you want to see where did the, the little Olsen twins, like what do they look like now? Or where does that obscure person that you don't see anymore, what do they look like now? Full House, maybe Dawson's Creek if you're a little younger. If you're a little older, maybe leave it to Beaver. How many of you knew that Beaver Cleaver, and I used to watch this show with my grandparents, how do you know that Beaver Cleaver served in the Air Force during Vietnam? I didn't know that until recently. We're a people that like stories. We want to know stories. We want to know where people come from. When we meet new people, we ask them, what do you do? Where are you from? Have you always lived in Ketchikan? How many of you have been drawn in to doing a DNA test? Right? And you're curious, where did I come from? Where did my ancestors come from? I'm 5% Welsh. Wow, I never knew I'd had anybody from Wales before. Many of you have interesting stories. You have fathers who were test pilots. You have fathers who are politicians, turkey call makers, Alaska pioneers, immigrants from Europe, pilgrims, and patriots. Human beings like stories. We want to know where we come from. There's something in us that wants to know and that takes pride in where we come from. So as we think about worldview, we have to ask the question, what is our story? Where is man from? Where do people come from? Why are we here? Today we think about the story of humanity. Where do people come from? And this is super important for us. Not just because we're curious, but because we live in a world that is confused over who is man. I mean, just think about in an enlightened age, in a, in a modern age, as people might say, we actually have documentaries that say, what is woman? Something as simple as gender that we're born with, we're confused about. Marriage, we're confused about as a society. So today, it is important for us to look back to the beginning of this story of mankind. And to do that, we're also going to be introduced to a new word, and it's meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is the big story. It is the overarching story that helps us understand life. Meta-narratives give purpose to our life. In Christianity, we see in our meta-narrative, we have creation. We have the fall. We have redemption, and all of this story finds its apex, its highest point in Jesus Christ. 
And so as we think about our worldview, and as we think about the series on worldview, as Jerry mentioned this morning, it is the lens through which we see the world, and we ask these, these big questions. Every worldview has to answer five questions. Who is God? Is there a God? If there is, what is He like? Why is there something instead of nothing? Is there a, a way of living that is required of us? So there are certain things that are out of bound for our behavior and conduct. And how do we know? How do we, how do we think? How do we, how do we even process data and decide these things we're talking about? And today we're going to ask the question, who or what is man? So we always get our, 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 uh, our two-part Greek word every week. Right, so we've had our theology, we've had our cosmology, and today we're going to have anthropology. So maybe you studied that in school. Maybe if you took you know, college at a secular university, you had a class on anthropology. Well, anthropology is the study of humanity, and it comes from the word anthropos, a human, mankind, a person. And together we are going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, to inform our understanding of anthropology. So if you'd grab your copy of the Bible, turn to me to chapter 1. We are not going to start at the very beginning. We're going to start in verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. We have Moses, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, and every bird of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having breath, the breath of life in it. I have also given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth and everything on them were completed, and on the seventh day God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all the work of his creation. These are the records of the heavens and earth concerning their creation at the time that God made the heavens and the earth. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But the mist would come up from the earth and water on the ground, water all the ground. Then the Lord formed man out of the depths of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And man became a living being. The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed man that he had formed. The Lord caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing and appearing and good for food, including the tree of the life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the sources of four rivers. The names of the first are Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, and there is gold. Gold from the land is pure, Bedlam and Onyx are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat of any of the tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. 
Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to help every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh over that place, at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she is taken from man. This is why the man, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you have revealed to us how you have created the universe, who you are, and how we are to live. God, I pray that you would guard these people's ears, guard my mouth, that only that which is helpful would come from it, and if there's anything unhelpful that would come from me, that it would be forgotten. God, help us to understand who we are in light of who you are and in light of your word, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. This passage teaches us four things about mankind, about humanity. Man was made in the image of God. Man was created with two genders, male and female. Man was created for a purpose, and man was created very good. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. In Hebrew, its name means in the beginning. And Genesis lays the groundwork for the entire Bible, for this entire meta-narrative. We see in Genesis the creation of the world. We see from Adam to Abraham, and then we see the patriarchs and the, the forming of the nation of Israel. And Genesis is the appropriate place to begin our quest for the Christian worldview. Because as Kenneth Matthew says, there is no Christian worldview without Genesis. Now we are going to be in chapter 2 for the next three weeks, right? And so obviously there's a lot here. And so we're going to look at chapter 2 from three different angles. And this week we're looking at it from the idea of who is man. And next week we're going to look at it from the angle of how should we think and then the next week ethics. So some of the things that we're going to touch on today as marriage and gender, we're going to unpack a little further in a couple weeks when we talk about ethics. So as we look at this chapter 2, we're also a little bit in chapter 1, you notice there's some repetition, right? In chapter 1, we see how God created everything, and then we go back and we're creating man again. What is that all about? And as commentators have said, it's almost like in chapter 1, we get, this, we get the summary of this is how the world is created. And then in chapter 2, we go back and we zoom in on specifics about man. And what we see as we look at this chapter 2 is that man is created in the image of God. That's the first and foundational thing we see. Man is created in the image of God. We see in verse 26 of chapter 1 that God decides to create man. It says, let us create man in our image. And we're going to talk about the image of God here in a minute, but first we've got to say, what does that mean to make us, right? Like, who, who is us? Well, this is dialogue, friends, within the Trinity, Right? Now, scholars sometimes differ on this, but I believe and I affirm this is dialogue within the Trinity. Some scholars say, well, this is God looking out at the heavenly host saying, let us, like you're a bunch of angels and stuff, let us make God in our image. But I don't think that's the case, friends, because you and I aren't made in the image of angels. That can't be right. It's God conferring with himself within the Godhead. As Calvin said, the Lord needs no other counselor other than himself. So here we see the Trinity saying, let us make God in our image. And in verse 27, we see that he does what he has decided to do, and he makes man in his image. But what does that mean? 
What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, the Imago Dei is the, the theological term for the image of God, and that's one you're going to hear a lot. So that's one you might be worth remembering. The Imago Dei, we are made in the image of God, separates man from all the other creatures and marks him as the crown of the entire created order. So we're going to start there. doesn't exactly answer our question. We're going to work there. So the first thing we have to notice is that we are separated from the rest of creation by the fact that we bear this image. Now, some have ascribed this Imago Dei to only man's spirit, only his inner being, only the inner man. But we know that can't be right either. Why can't that be right? Well, they do so, I I think, trying to say that God is spirit. He doesn't have a a, a physical body like God the Father. Um, But we read in Genesis 9 that when you kill a person, that crime is so heinous because the destruction of the body is an attack on the image of God. Right? You're not destroying the soul when you murder someone. You're destroying their body. But even the Bible says that's an attack on the image of God. Calvin writes it this way. Calvin is very helpful in this chapter. He says, While the primary seed of the divine image was in the mind and the heart, or in the soul and its powers, there was no part even of the body in which some rays of the glory of God did not shine. So I think what he's getting at there is all of Adam's creation, created good, created without sin, all of that reflects the image of God. It saturated all of Adam's existence. But still, you're asking, what is that? What is this image of God? Well, from Scripture, I think we can say that the Imago Dei is, one, original righteousness. Adam is originally holy. He is without sin. It means that we have a spirit that separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. The rest of the animal kingdom has a spirit. You know, I talked about Brave a couple weeks ago. I like the movie Brave, but you watch it discerningly. We can also say all dogs go to heaven, right? Like dogs don't have a spirit. That's a funny movie that I liked as a kid, but men, man, men and women have a spirit because they bear the image of God. Immortality. Men and women will live forever because they bear the image of God. Dominion. We see in the chapter that, that man is to rule over the earth. Rule over the earth as God's representatives. And then we could also say creativity. Man creates, man, dis- man discerns, man studies, man learns in a way that the rest of the animal kingdom does not. Man is different for the rest, from the rest of creation because he has the image of God and because he has breath breathed in him from God. Take a look at verse 2-7. Then the Lord formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and man became a living being. What we see in our creation, friends, unlike the rest of the creation, is it's a two-part creation. Two parts. Right? (coughs) We see that God made the entire universe ex nihilo from nothing. Right? Like he, He doesn't take existing stuff, but He makes the entire universe from nothing. But then man is made from the dirt that he's already created. Made from the ground. As Calvin said, man comes from the dirt. Let him boast of himself. Right? Like if you ever get too big ahead, remember that we are created from the ground, from dirt. So first, man, his body is made from the dirt or ground. But second, Adam receives breath directly from God. God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And when this happens, we read that man becomes a living being. The KJV said a living soul. The ESV says a creature. But no other creature is described as having such an intimate relationship with the Creator. Like we don't read that that God breathed the breath of life into giraffes. It's into man. Man is distinct from the rest of creation because he has this, this breath of life that has been breathed into his lung, made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. In this story, man is made in the image of God. But his creation isn't isn't arbitrary. Man is created with a purpose. Look with me at verse 26 of chapter 1. 
God says, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So let them rule. They will have dominion. Them. Not just Adam, but Adam's descendants. All of mankind is to steward creation. So we can't say part of the image of God is this care of creation. And this is a biblical theme, right? Like we can see it in multiple places in Proverbs and in Deuteronomy, where it says a righteous man cares for his animals. We also see that the Bible assumes a linkage between righteousness and the welfare of the earth. Now, you've heard me say this about other doctrines, but I really hate that even by saying that, some people will automatically link me with an American political party. I'm not talking politics, guys. You guys can fight about that later. I will step out and do better things with my life. But what I do see is that the Bible says a righteous man cares about God's creation. It's created by our Lord. I remember when I was a kid, my granddad used to tell me stories. He grew up on a farm in Alabama, and uh, they, had, they didn't have a car. They had to take their mule and wagon to town. And He told me that when they were not working the crops, when they were not milking the cows, when they were not doing those things, that they would clean up the woods. He, he, he used to lament the fact that like now you walk through the woods in that part of Alabama, and you step over stuff, and you trip over stuff, because he said, when I was a kid, we'd clean up the woods. He even talked about how he would practice football by like juking the trees and stuff, because it was so clear that he could run through the woods around his house. And when he taught me to drive, we went past land one time where these pulp orders had come in, and they had just raped the, the ground, right? Like Not just that they were taking trees, but it was just jacked up and all messed up, and he said, I really hate to see God's creation destroyed like that. I think of Tolkien and the trees. Tolkien was no fan of industrialization because they took his, his quiet little country England and, and the bogs and the forests and the things that he liked and leveled it and put in a factory. And you see that when you read the Lord of the Rings with the orcs, right? And their fires and their making of swords and how they're destroying the land. I don't care what your political background is. I don't care who you vote for, but man is instructed in God's Word to govern and care for God's creation. And in verse 28, we see God commands Adam to go and to steward the earth of its creatures. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, make more humans, subdue the earth. In verse 215, we read that Adam gave, was given responsibility over Eden. So, so God plants this garden, this, this perfect garden, and he puts Adam in it and says, watch over this. It's your guard. Steward this garden. Watchful care, protection. And spoiler alert, if you didn't hear it already in the kid's sermon, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. And in in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2, we read that he is tasked with naming all the creatures of the world. Now imagine that task, right? Like day six, all right, Adam, I'm going to parade all these creatures in front of you. That's a monkey. That's a monkey too. We've already used monkey. Okay, that's an orangutan. Right, you got to name all these creatures. That's his job. And what we see here is just as the heavens that God created bring him glory, so is man to bring God glory by fulfilling the tasks he gives us. We have a purpose, friends, here in life. In the New Testament, that is unpacked further. We see that we are to glorify God with our lives, that we are to follow his instruction because it is all breathed out by him. We have a great commission to preach the gospel in every corner of the universe. And we are to use our various gifts to serve the church and to glorify God. Friends, being a Christian is not to be idle. But we have responsibilities. We have a job. We are to be faithful. In this story, in this meta-narrative of the Bible, Adam is tasked with a mission from God, his Creator. And God creates a helper for him in his mission. The third thing we see is that man was created with two genders, male and female. Look with me at verse 127 again. So God created, he's determined he's going to create man in his image. 
says, so God created man in his own image, and he created them in the image of God. He created them male and female. Friends, I know it's a controversial thing to say in 2024, but there are two genders. There are two genders and only two, male and female. And both of these genders are made in the image of God. And both of these genders have equal value. One is not worth more than the other. One is not better than the other. Both are very good. God made men distinct from women. Distinct in their biology. Distinct in how we think. Right? Like I, I watched a movie with Sarah one time. It was one of these rom-coms and the guy said, you know, it's like that book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And the woman said, oh, you've read that book? And he said, no, the title kind of sums it up. We're distinct in the way that we think. We're distinct in our biology. And the Bible shows that we are distinct in our roles. To deny the distinction of men and women is to deny both Scripture and what is plain and clear in nature. I'm going to say that one more time. Not that I don't think you guys get it, but I just want to be clear. To deny the distinction of men and women is to deny both what Scripture says and what is plain and clear in nature. If you believe that a man can become a woman, you are at odds not only with the Bible, but just reality. Just reality. You know, I often ask guys, if they ask me, they find I'm a Christian, they say, do you believe that you know, you can't choose your own gender. I say, well, you know, if there's a landslide and we are all covered in mud and 2,000 years from now they dig us up, they're not going to wonder what did this skeleton identify as. They're going to be able to tell by our DNA and by our skeletal structure if we were male or female. We are different, but we are complementary. We complement one another, right? Man and woman's nature and roles are... are they're meant to go together, and they're both created in the image of God. Like magnets, you need a negative and a positive for there to be harmony. Two negatives don't stick together. Two positives don't. And God looked at man, and he looked at Adam, and he says, one more thing is needed. Think about that. He created everything. I mean, I know he knew from before the foundation of the world because he knew your name if you're a Christian. But you see this in Scripture. Everything is created, and then it says... One more thing is needed. A human woman. And in verse 2.18, God looks at Adam and declares that it is not right for him to be alone and states that he's going to make a helper that is suitable for Adam. Man is a social animal. He needs companionship. It's not natural for man to be a lone ranger. Look at verse 2.21. So God causes this deep sleep to come over Adam and he slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh in its place, at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. So Adam, God makes Adam fall into this deep sleep. So he doesn't know what's going on. It's like he sedated him, right? He put him under. And he's determined, I'm going to make a helper for Adam. And he causes the sleep to come and he takes one of Adam's ribs. Now remember, Adam is made from the dirt, so you might call him refined dirt. But then he makes Eve from Adam. So as one professor has said, it's though women is doubly refined dirt, which may be why men were so much slobs, were closer to the dirt than our wives. But then God makes Eve, and she brings, him, brings her to her husband. And look at his response. Look at 22 through 25. Then the Lord makes... Uh, the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man and the man said at last this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh this one will be called woman for she is taken from man this is why a man leaves his father and mother and and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh and the man and the wife were naked and felt no shame so we see adam he says at last and part of me kind of chuckles when you watch this because this is you know i believe this is day six Right, And you think, all right, man, like you're, you're a couple hours old. What do you mean at last? But what I think it means is, is and then I think what, what, the, what the Bible is telling us is Adam's sitting here with all these animals, and he's going, okay, that's a giraffe, that's a wolf, 
That, that's a bear. And, and all these animals, and then he sees woman. Right, like Adam's a, Adam's a guy, and he's seeing a pretty girl for the first time, and he says, at last, this one is like me. This one's bone of my bone. This one's of my flesh. It's not like them. It's not like all those animals. This one is like me, and, and what do I call her? What, what, what name do I have for her? And he says, this one is Isha, because she comes from Ish. This one is woman, because she comes from man. Literally, she is the maness, because she comes from out of man. God takes something from Adam and he creates his helpmate with it so that Adam will embrace her as part of himself. Men, the Bible presents our wives throughout from Genesis to the end as our own flesh. They are our own flesh. Paul says this when he says, no one hates his own flesh. No sane person hates their own flesh, but cares and nurtures for it. In the same way, husbands, you are to nurture your wives as your own body. Husbands, love your wives, nurture them. Wives, respect your husbands and help them. And there's more to come on this in a few weeks, like I said, when we talk about marriage. But today we're thinking about what it just means to be a man and a woman. And we see objections to this passage, don't we? And so I think it's good in the second point to spend a little extra time here. That's what we're going to do. And the second point, spend a little extra time because maybe you're embarrassed to talk about biblical manhood and womanhood with your friends. Maybe you're embarrassed to talk about gender. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're the guy that's like walks into work and is like, all right, boys, today we're talking about gender. But maybe you're not. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe you don't know how to defend what you believe. So of the worldview elements we think of, this is certainly one of the more controversial. So it's good to spend a little time here. So one objection we might hear is calling a woman a man's helper, right? Like, I'm more than some man's helper. That might be something you're thinking, or that might be something that you hear. Well, friends, I want to say that the fall has distorted our view of marriage and gender, right? The fall has distorted it all. If you want to know things, why things are all jacked up, wait till chapter 3, and we see that. We see that things are messed up between man and woman because of the fall. But we also know that in our own society, things have gotten weirder in the last 100 years. The sexual and moral revolution of the 1960s have made gender and marriage wonky topics to talk about. Recently, I listened to a long podcast by Al Mohler about how the 1940s, when all the men went off to war and the women had to take their places in the factory, messed up just normal family lifestyle. Because prior to that time, he said that a man was paid enough money, like the companies thought, how much do I have to pay this man so he can support his family? But after that time, companies said, hey man, we can up production if both the man and the woman work. To the point now where it's hard for a man to support a family on one wage. So all of these things mess with our understanding of biblical manhood and womanhood. In Alaska, I would argue there's an additional layer. I have a buddy on Prince of Wales trying to minister there, and he says practically this, this doctrine is often uh, disregarded because he says that we have a bunch of his words, not mine, but I see what he's talking about, sourdough women who have headship of their households. The men do what the wife says because they want to stay out of trouble. If the wife wants this, the man isn't going to attempt to lead. And so all of that to say our society is at odds and think it's strange when they are confronted with biblical marriage and they say, I'm more than some man's helper. So what does this mean? Let's dig into it a little bit here. <clears throat> Again, with more to come in a few weeks. Well, the Hebrew word for helper here is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 19 times we find this word helper that Eve is. 16 of those 19 times it refers to God. So as we start to think about this, there is no way that we can say that to call a woman a helper is degrading. So let's start there. Because if God's saying that of himself using this word, we can't say that to be called a helper is degrading, not biblically. Well, what does it mean to be a helper? What does it mean practically? Well, we say it's God's design. We see that in the passage. 
And, and I'm reminded of a time when, when Sarah and I first moved to Kansas City and we were meeting with our, our future pastor and, and pastor's wife. And, and as, as this big move happened, you you're, you're have a lot of questions. And I remember hearing Sarah off to the side with the pastor's wife and she says, what practical ways can I serve Alan during this time as he's going through seminary? How can I serve him? And I remember it was so refreshing to hear the pastor's wife. She didn't say, well, here's my eight-point bullets that I give every seminary wife. She said, well, maybe just ask him what he needs for help. If you're a helper, where do you find the help? A podcast, a blog? Well, maybe ask the person you're trying to help. Now, obviously, men, you can take that too far, and men have taken that too far, and we lament that. But this is God's design. We see in Proverbs 31 that, that a good helpmate is a woman of noble character. That she is more precious than jewels. That her husband trusts her and she is just a joy to him. And that she rises before the sun. That she has strong arms. That one always makes me chuckle a little bit. I think I like bicep curls or something. She rises before the sun. She has strong arms. She keeps her house in order and is not afraid of the future. She trusts God. She speaks wisdom. And she speaks instruction and love. Her children call her blessed, and her husband praises her. Proverbs 31 says that charm and beauty, all those things that our society is, is, is lusting after so they can put it on Pinterest, all that stuff is fleeting. But the one who honors the Lord is to be praised. What's the flip side of that? Selfish? Lazy? Bitter? Proverbs 21 says that it is better to sleep on the roof of the house than to have a quarrelsome wife. People tell me the Bible's not applicable. I mean, just think about that. The Bible says, hey man, it's better for you to be up on the roof than in the house if you have a wife like that. Single men, look for a woman who desires to honor the Lord. The single ladies do the same thing. Look for a man who loves God, who loves Christ more than he loves you. Calvin wrote that if the fall had not occurred, the sweetest harmony would reign in marriage. Husbands would look up to God with reverence, and the wives would be faithful assistants to their husband. But sorrow, dissension, all manner of evil and abuse and shenanigans arise in marriage, not because of its design, not because God says this is the way households should be structured, but because of sin. Because of sin. More than a helper? How can we look at the crown of God's good creation and say, no, it's not enough? Our belief in a worldview is tested by our actions. Do we really believe something if we don't live it out? If a wife is leading her husband, that's contrary to God's instruction. God created Adam first, then Eve. And God's design is for men to lead in his church and to lead in households. I understand that our culture struggles with that design. But we must remember the doctrine of divine priority. Divine priority. There's God, and then there's everything else. And over a few years of ministry, I've concluded that either people want to do what God says, or they don't. But what about gender? That's another one, right? People object to that one. God's design and gender. We're thinking about humanity. We're thinking about who we are in humans. And people object to the concept of gender. We live in a world where in 2014, Facebook came under fire for only offering 58 different gender choices. 58. How dare they? How dare they not? How dare they not acknowledge the 59th? How dare God only give us two genders? Who does that guy think he is? What do they say? That's not fair. Friend, maybe you believe you were born the wrong gender. And maybe you're not even to the point where you're like, well, I'm going to go take hormone therapy or whatever, but you just like think, man, I should have been a man. Or, I should have been a woman. I want to wear pretty stuff. God has structured all of our existence because we are His creation. We are His. 
And the created order is fair because God designed it that way. He assigns our genders. He assigns our roles. He assigned these roles from the very beginning. We will say God predestined us to salvation before the foundation of the world. Yes, He also decided whether we would be male or female. So friend, you are the exact gender that you are supposed to be. As Sam read in the psalm this morning, He knew you and knitted you together in your mother's womb. God's creator may be a mystery. His created order may be a mystery. But it is the best because it comes from an all-wise creator. In the story of man, God creates us male and female. His design is good because he is good. And the fourth thing we see about man is that man was created very good. Man is created very good. The most offensive verse to a fallen world in the whole Bible, the most offensive verse to a lost world out there, if you take your Bible out there, is going to be Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. Why? Before there was a gender, there was God. Before there was marriage, there was God. Before there was any of us, there was God. And to acknowledge Genesis 1.1 is to acknowledge that you are not in charge. To acknowledge that in the beginning there was God and God created is to acknowledge that we are not captain of the ship. But look with me at verse 131. God saw all that He had made and it was very good indeed. The Bible is clear. God made everything. He gave order to everything. He, 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 he did everything that we see around us, and it is very good. The animals, they're good. They were created good. Sin has entered the world. We got that. But before the fall, everything is good. Giraffes are good. I don't know why I keep saying giraffes. My kids like giraffes. But wolves are good. Like Humpbacks are good. Salmon are good. Halibut is good. It's all good. Mankind is good. The mission He has given man to do, what He has told him and charged him to do, it is very good. God's instruction is very good. The genders, male and female, it's very good. Our roles, what we are called to do is very good. Marriage is very good because the One who is good created it all. We are God's creation. And He decides what is good. This is fundamental to our worldview, friends. And so, how do we think about competing worldviews? Now again, we've talked about a lot of things here, gender and marriage, that are going to come out in these competing worldviews in a couple of weeks, so I'm not skipping over them. Today, we're mostly thinking about the story of man and who man is. And so let's think about modernity or naturalism. In the naturalist thought, man has evolved from purposeless matter and energy. There's no meta-narrative. There's no story. We are the product of evolutionary processes that took billions of years, and we are only slightly removed from the barbarism of the animal kingdom. And it is only because of this process that took place over billions and billions and years, but we ourselves are merely animals. In the modern worldview, we are a complex machine that ceases to exist when our material bodies die. i say that again. In modernity, in naturalism, we are a complex machine that ceases to exist when our material body dies. Our life ends at physical death. There's no future hope. There's nothing after this. When the natural processes of our body end and we close our eyes, it's nothing. We cease to exist. There is no overarching story about man past what the, quote, evolved meat machines create for themselves. Postmodernity. Again, no meta narrative to human life. There's no story. Everything is random. There is no truth. There is no objective reality above ourselves. Jean Francois Lyotard describes postmodernity as incredulity towards meta-narratives. Skepticism towards meta-narratives. The postmodern mind believes that a meta-narrative is oppressive and it must be opposed. Which is a problem for Christians because 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the meta-narrative of meta-narratives. In post-modernity, man does not know where he is, why he is, or who he is. So that again, in post-modernity, man does not know where he is, why he is, or who he is. Everything is random. Everything is, is relative. If you want a gender of your own making, go for it. If you want to be captain of your own ship, man, redefine whatever you want to redefine. Moeller says, in the name of postmodernism, anything can be explained away as a matter of your interpretation. Not long ago, I had a friend who was telling me about he got into a disagreement with a man who had lied to him. This, my friend is a pastor. And he said, he told this man, he said, friend, you lied to me. And the guy said back to him, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. And he said, no, like, you lied to me. And the guy said, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. And he said, no, 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 you're not, you're not getting it. Like, this is the truth. This is what you told me. And the guy said, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. He says, this isn't about my feelings, right? This is, you told me an untruth, but this right here, what this guy was, was showing us was postmodern thinking. There's no truth. Everything's relative, right? You see that in a Bible study. The Bible says, don't do A. And the person says, well, that's your interpretation. In the postmodern mind, everything is relative. There cannot possibly say anything concrete about anything, and that includes man. Because man doesn't know where he is, why he is, or who he is. He's confused. Marxism. Contrary to modernity and postmodernity, Marxism actually does have a meta-narrative. So, of the four worldviews we're looking at, the only two that have meta-narratives are Christianity and Marxism. Marxism does have an overarching story about man. Marx taught that man is progressing through stages of history to a utopia, right? So we start out with primitive man, and then he kind of gets into like tribalism, right? And, and then we have a, a slave states and feudal systems, and then, and then we, 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 we go from feudalism to like capitalism, and then we get to socialism, but that's not good enough. The, the goal is always communism, right? This communist utopia, man is moving from this primal Primal form to, to uh, communism. And in Marxism, man acts freely in nature. He's separate from the animals. But he's going to find his happiness in communism. In the Marxist worldview, class struggle is the devil. And salvation is found in communism. But in these first two passages of Genesis, we're confronted with a biblical worldview. We see here the greatest story ever told. God created the universe, and it was what? Very good. Man is created in a state of relative perfection. Man is created in a state of righteousness, in a state of holiness. And he's instructed, be fruitful. Care for the earth. Do this job that I have for you. Care for creation. Protect and lead your wife. She is your helper. And as one of the kids said, and, and, and is so wise, the first sin is a failure to follow God's instruction. A failure to protect the garden from Satan. A failure to protect his wife, the helper that he was given. And because of that, sin and death entered creation, and we suffer because of that. But we're not innocent because we join in that rebellion. You know, in this passage, Adam is told there's one tree you must abstain from. One tree. Don't eat from this one tree. He was called to fast from this one tree. And he broke his fast. He should have spoke God's words to the serpent. But instead he remained silent. He should have protected his wife. But instead... He allowed sin to enter the world and partake of it, and he was removed from the garden. And angels barred the way to the garden. But the good news is, is he wasn't the only Adam. Because there came a second and final Adam. And this Adam in the wilderness kept his fast. 
And this Adam in the wilderness spoke God's words to the ancient serpent when tempted. And because of that, because of his faithfulness where Adam was unfaithful, the angels came and ministered to him and did not bar away. And because of his faithfulness and his mission that God gave him, Christ's bride, the second Adam's bride, found life. Adam's disobedience had consequences. And all the world reaped the consequences because he was their representative. Humanity's representative, Adam, and all the sin enters the world and his descendants inherit those consequences. And as soon as we're able, we actively participate in that rebellion as well. The Imago Dei, friends, is marred by sin, but not totally removed. The breath of God means that all men are immortal. All people will either spend eternity in the new creation with Christ or in hell with that ancient serpent. And in His great mercy, God sent forth His Son to redeem mankind, the second Adam, to walk a perfect life. What do both Adams have in common? Neither one have ancestors, only descendants. And you and I are either in Adam or in Christ. Christ walked a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on the cross, died for the sins of His bride, conquered death and hell, and is recreating all of those whom He calls to Himself. As we read in Colossians 3.10, In Christ we have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. So friends, this creation was created very good and has fallen, but it is being renewed by Christ. Have you trusted Him? Because you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And if you are in Adam, today is the day you must repent. You must turn from that active rebellion that is your nature and turn to Christ. Believe the gospel. Be saved. For God is good. Father, thank you for this day. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your creation, but God, most of all, thank you for Christ. God, we praise your holy name that you did not leave us. You did not leave us to ourselves, God, but you call us to yourself and apply the atoning work of Christ to all those who call upon his name. God, I pray for those who are hearing my voice who are not in Christ, God, that they would humble themselves today, that they would turn and repent, that you would graciously and mercifully call them to yourself. And I pray for all of us here that are in Christ that we would be renewed in our thinking, that we would conform the way that we see the world around us to your word, that we would think rightly about who you are and who we are, and that we would speak your truth boldly. In the world you are created that is marred by sin, and I pray it all in Christ's holy name. Amen.